Good morning. Uh, so my name is Thomas Morse, and I'm from. I attend Springbrook with uh, my wife and my kids. That's Alicia and Maya and Kai, and um, we're very excited to be here this morning. I'm excited to share a message with you. So I'm convinced uh, that we don't spend nearly enough time in, in the first three quarters of our Bible. Um, the Old Testament is extremely important for Christians, uh, and that's because we follow Jesus Christ. Um, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, uh, it's a title, right? And so we claim to be Christians, uh, and, and so Christ, uh, or Messiah, means anointed one, and so we are claiming to be little anointed ones. So today we're going to look at uh, how Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, there's only three types of people in the in Jewish tradition that are anointed. Okay? It's the king, it's the prophet, and the priest, the high priest. And so we're going to look at how Jesus is the king. He's the anointed snake crusher from the seed of Abraham, who uh, is, is also from the line of David. We're going to look at why that matters to us today. So uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. In the past five years in particular, I've, I've really become convinced that we don't spend enough time in the Old Testament, but really the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, we, don't, we don't spend enough time in the pulpit or in our classroom, in our homes, studying these, these just really, really deep uh, and, and important chapters of the Bible. So we're, that's where we're going to start today. We're going to spend some time there, and then we're going we're gonna to move forward. And so in the first two chapters of Genesis, we, we just see this really beautiful picture of God who creates this perfect place that we call home. Uh, in, in comparison to this picture of, of this perfectly wonderful God who is, who is totally in control, who creates by... By speaking, um, there, there are other stories that are out there. There's, there's competing stories, and those stories still exist today. Um, there's, there's stories about frivolous and, and angry gods, violent gods, um, gods who, who only create out of their, their desire to destroy. And there's, there's stories from, from civilizations in, like Babylon, who you know, Babylon believed that their god, uh, Marduk, um, he, they believed that, that the only way that he created, the only reason he created was, was by killing his, his mother, who was this, this beast dragon of chaos, uh, Tiamat, and he, he had to rip her in half, and then from one half he made the, the ground, and the other half he made the skies. And, and so that's, that's their story, is, is that there's these capricious gods who create humans as slaves uh, to feed their insatiable desires. Okay, that's, that's where uh, our story is, is, is so different. It's, it's unique. And especially in, in, in the time that, that it, it was written, it's, it's about this God who, who hovers over chaos, and he's just undisturbed by it. It doesn't bother him. He doesn't have to fight with any dragon or, or any, any sort of thing. He's, he's, he's in control. He creates this, this perfect temple garden. He puts his images there, so that's, that's humans, that's us, uh, and it's not made of stone, it's, it's, it's living, breathing flesh. And he doesn't force them into servitude, but he invites them into his story. He invites them to partner with him there in this perfect garden. And so with these words, we have this tradition that's completely different from all others on earth, very, very different from Israel's neighbors, to be sure. So God gives his image uh, to all humans, both man and woman, and he invites people to work with him. 
And, and it's easy to take for granted what's going on here. Because in our culture and society, for the most part, we kind of agree with these propositions that, that all people are created equal. And, 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 but that's, that's such a rare, it's so aberrant in, in human history to, to, to look at something like that. Because okay, human history is just this long story, and even today it's this story of, of, of one people group oppressing another. It's one group which, which tells another group that, hey, we're, we're made in the image of our gods or our God, uh, but you really aren't. And then they subject them to their will through violence and, and coercion. And so that's, that's kind of a long aside to come to this critical moment in Genesis chapter 3. Because there's these other cultures that tell the story of violence and disobedience. And then there's, um, uh, sorry, they they tell the story that that violence and disobedience is really woven into the the nature of all things. That's that's their story. And so the king of Babylon, he oppresses and he uh, pushes other people down because he's made in the image of Marduk. Right? And Marduk creates the world through violence and destruction. So, so of course, the king of Babylon is going to do the same. Right? That's how he creates order, is through violence and destruction. And, you know, for, for the, the people of Babylon, you just got to get up as high up on that totem pole as you can get, just through the same means. You want to get as close to the image as possible um, to reduce your own suffering, even though you know that's going to be the, at the expense of others. So our story is different. I want to emphasize that. Our story is so different. Genesis 3 explains why this pain and suffering exists. The other cultures, they say it's just inherent. It's the way things are. But not us. We say that God created this world. You know, if, uh, if, if we could see the Puget Sound from here, we, or, or the oceans, the mountains, the trees, he creates these things just by speaking. The night sky, the, the birds in the air, and, and, and the, the fish that's, that swim in the sea, and, and the beasts, and crawling things, and even us. He creates all these things. And, and the story we tell, that's, he says it's good. Right? He says these things are very good. It's not, it's not inherently bad. Things were originally good, very good. And so the reason that things are as bad as they are is because God gives us a choice. He, he gives us this free will. So let's start reading Genesis 3, starting in verse 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So the problem is, is, is definitely with our choice. But there's also a snake in the garden. It's a serpent. It's, it's a, that's bad, right? That shouldn't be there. Like, why, why is there a snake in this garden? An evil talking snake, no less. Right? Like, that's, that's strange, but it's something that, that, that Genesis doesn't give us any answers to. There's no... Where'd it come from? Where'd he go? We don't know. But we do know that we get a promise from God regarding this snake directly after this happens. So skip down to verse 14. I want us to read. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, 
Cursed are you above all the livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so we see the first, we see the first hint of a solution to this problem. So the woman eventually is going to produce an heir who's going to destroy evil at its source. Right? This, this snake crusher is, is what I'm going to kind of call this, this promise. Okay? And at the same time, he's going to be wounded. Is, is, is this, this mutual destruction that we, we kind of see here. Uh, but it's definitely going to be worse off for the snake that gets crushed you know, in the head than, than the man that gets uh, struck on the heel. And so um, one, one last thing that I want to look at you got a couple, can you go a couple, couple more? Is nothing on there? Okay. That's okay. Um, so one thing that we're going to look at uh, next is in Genesis chapter 8. So if you turn, turn with me to there, uh, it's going to be the last thing we're going to look at in these, these first 11 chapters of Genesis. But I want to remind us that these, these chapters are all set up. They're just an introduction to what the main problem is for the entire rest of the Bible. Okay, So... We see that the true depravity of, of God's creatures, that, that he's given free will, and, and again and again, um, we, we tend to choose to define good and evil on our own terms. We, we seize the fruit and uh, suffer the consequences of that sin. And those are the, the kind of natural consequences that come about. If you do something wrong, uh, it's, it's against the way that God has, has put things in order, and so something normally bad that is going to happen to you. Uh, but also, God's just, and so he's going to bring death and, and just and, and punishment there. And so, Adam and Eve, they sin, they're punished, they're exiled from the garden. Cain sins, he's punished, he's exiled. And the people of earth, uh, we, we find out right before the flood story that every evil thought and intention of their hearts evil all the time. And so they're punished, and they're destroyed in the flood. And if that was the end of the story, it'd be completely just. Right? But it would be a, it'd be a tragedy, because like what hope is there? And so in Genesis eight, uh, Noah he he comes up out of the boat, and his family, they're they're the only ones that are left, and he offers a burnt offering up to God. In verse twenty one, we read, "The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood." And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. And then if we skip to the next chapter, in chapter 9, starting in verse 12, it says, uh, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you, and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds... And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring the clouds over the earth and a rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I'll see it and remember my everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So, so something has changed here. In these, these, these parts. Something has, has changed. Um, and it's not humans. Okay? Before the flood, humans evil all the time. After the flood, God recognizes, um, I'm not going to do this again, even though humans, all, all they're doing is, is evil all the time. 
And so the, the thing that has changed is the way that God's going to deal with humans before and after this point. And, and what's, what's really kind of interesting here, somebody pointed this out to me, is, is that in ancient cultures, there's, a, there's this common symbol, the sign, that what you find in inscriptions and, and on the walls where kings, you know, I've, I've taken over this nation and this nation and this nation, and you see the, the king standing up triumphant, and he has his foot on the neck of somebody that, you know, he just beat. Um, but when these nations surrender and they make some sort of treaty or covenant with this king, um, usually the king will be holding a bow, and the bow, bow and arrow, like a bow, uh, and the bow will be turned away from the person that he's relenting from. Okay? So this is a very common symbol back in, in this time. And so this says that uh, I'm ceasing hostilities against you. Okay? And so what does God provide as a symbol for us? We have the bow, and is that pointing towards us? No, it's, it's, it's pointing away from us. It's this new sign, this symbol that, that God is ceasing hostilities. He's, he's, he's going to do things in a different way than he was before this point. Okay? And this is reflected in the Tower of Babel story, which isn't like a, a human triumph by any means, but instead of destroying all these nations who are kind of back at it again, uh, he, he just divides them up and he scatters them, which really kind of starts to accomplish some of what God is, is working towards, his purposes. So now turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, and, and what we're going to see here is, is God's going to completely flip the script now. Okay? So in this, in this chapter of Genesis, we find this guy, Abram, uh, and, and he, God's just going to treat him completely differently than, than before. So 12 verse 1, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I'll show you. Uh, we're going to talk about the blessing that, that he gives here in a minute, but skip down to verse 4, and it says, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, and his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there, and Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree at Morah and Shechem. And at that time the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From then on, he went towards, or from there, he went to, on toward the hills east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. And so this is the first story about Abram. So we get, we get a lot of setup. Okay, this is all, this is all set up so far. We're just kind of, who is this guy? Where'd he come from? Uh, what's his deal? Okay, so now we're going we're gonna to see the first story about Abram, okay? And, and when you see these things in the, in the Bible, it's like, if you get the first, first story about somebody, that's going to be an important story, okay? So, so take note. And what I want us to do is, is to really look at this uh, like it is a story, because it is a story. It's presented as a narrative for us to, to help us understand who Abram is and who God is. Okay, so in all stories, they have a problem, they have a climax, and a resolution. Okay? So if we misidentify the problem, we're going to misread the whole story. Okay, so as we read the next portion, that's what I want us to think about, is what's the problem? And then what's the climax, and, and how does that problem get resolved? And if you're reading through and you're like, that's the problem, but it never gets resolved in the story, then that's, that wasn't the problem. Okay? It's something else. right? And, and our conclusions about... What matters is going to be directly tied to, to what's the problem, how is God working in this situation, what's the climax, and what's the resolution. Okay, so let's, let's read. 
So verse 9 says, Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know you're a, what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you're my sister, so that I'll be treated well for, this, for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman, and then when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys and male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. Why have you done this to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. In verse 1 in chapter 13, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had and lot with him. And Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Okay. So that's, that's the first story that we hear about Abram. So, so what's the problem and what's the resolution? It, it can't be the famine because the famine's mentioned at the beginning, but we never hear about the famine going away or anything else. So, so that's just set up. That's, that's just more set up to this, this problem. So the, 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 the problem is that Sarai is taken out of Abram's house and the lie that's associated with, with, with that. Okay? God's going to deliver uh, an heir to Abram through Sarai, and so the fact that he's not in, in his household anymore, she's not in his household anymore, that's a problem. Okay? And, and so how does God resolve it? Well, he sends plagues on Pharaoh. Sound familiar? It's, it's, it should be familiar. Okay? And then... He gives, and then Pharaoh gives Sarai back to Moses, and that's the resolution. Okay, and does Moses come out on top? Sorry, Moses, Abram. Yeah, yeah. So Sarai is given back to Abram, and that really threw me off. And so the resolution is that that he comes back, but but what goes on with Abram? He just gets rich. Yeah, it works out super well for Abram. In fact, it's so, it works out so well, he's going to do it again later. It's like, this is, this is a great thing. The sister lie thing, like the wife sister, this, that's my go-to move. And then his son does it after that. Okay? And, so, and so it's like, what is going on here? Because up to this point, what has happened? What's, what's happened for people? They sin, and then they're found out, and then they're punished. Okay? So this story is the opposite of that. Right, Abram sins, he's found out, and he gets blessings. Okay? And that's not saying that God's okay with Abram's sin, but what we see in this story is that God is doing something different. Every story that follows for the rest of the Old Testament, things, things don't get better from here. Things, things get worse. Okay? People, people start acting worse. And just when you think that you meet a character that's going to be the one who pulls this off, the, the seed of of. Eve, who's going to crush the snake, it's, it's, you, know, you just realize that they're just as infected with sin as, as each, and one of every, each, each and every one of us. Okay, so, 
So God continues to work with this family in spite of their evil and in spite of their failures, not because they're, they're somehow righteous or, or different. And it's not until the introduction of Jesus do we find an offspring of Eve who can take on this, this role. Okay, so, so one of the most critical things to understand about the Bible is that it was written for us, but it was not written to us. Okay, so, so we're just going to touch on a, a, a couple quick things here. It was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And I know this because maybe we raise your hand if you're fluent in, in Koine Greek or ancient Hebrew. Yeah, not me. Uh, and, and people know that if they're going to write me letters or they're going to send me an email, they shouldn't write it in Greek or Hebrew if it's to me. Okay? So this, 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 this wonderful uh, thing that we have, the Bible, it's, it's definitely for us. It, it, it was preserved for us, but it wasn't written to us. So what we need to understand is, is that we have to take steps to understand who it was written for, who it was written by, and then, and then take our meaning from what the, the author intended and not what we might see as, as face value from, from some of these things. So one of my favorite teachers, he says, uh, you have to be like a good international traveler, right? Uh, if, you, if you step into a different culture, or especially a different time and place, you've got to learn some of the language. You've got to learn some of the customs. Uh, don't jump to conclusions because people are doing things differently than you are. So Genesis 12.1, let's, let's, let's go back a little bit. Let's read that one more time. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And the land that God shows him is the land of Canaan. So what I want to do today is reintroduce the land of Canaan to you. Okay? Most of your maps uh, in your Bible probably look something like this. Okay? Uh, they got some names, and you see down at the bottom is the Dead Sea. Let's see if I can get the laser to work. Get the Dead Sea. Oh, you can't see the laser on the screen. That's fun. Okay. Um, not a big deal. At the very bottom there, you get the Dead Sea, then you get the Sea of Galilee, and Jerusalem's uh, the top of the Dead Sea. Uh, or maybe they look like uh, this one. Uh, it's got kind of some more contour lines, but it's all um, uh, Can you go one more, one more ahead? Oh, oh, it's not doing it. That's okay. Um, this is the story, this is the map that I want to introduce you to. It's not that the maps in your Bible aren't good, but what they lack and what, what I want to bring into it is some of the context. Okay? So let's go to the, the next slide, and we'll, we'll rem, we need to remember that the Bible was written thousands of years ago. Okay? And when we look at terrain and, and contour lines and hills and things today, not a big deal. Okay? This, this little blip on the terrain map in our, in our Bible map, uh, it's like, it looks like nothing compared to the Rocky Mountains. Uh, that, that go across the U.S., right? But we've got to remember that, that you know, they, they're not building super highways at this time, right? Even small hills, valleys, rivers, things like that are going to be huge obstacles to trade, to, to international relations, to, to these people's livelihood, okay? So this is the map that I want you to, to, to remember, to take away today. Um, because people uh, are, are basically, um, they're going to want to have trade routes in the flat areas. Okay, So can you see the little black dotted line that goes along the coast there, uh, on, uh, right, right down the kind of middle? Um, so that's, that's a very common trade route that you take from, from Egypt to go north. And then um, there's, a, there's a little uh, thing that comes across there. That's going to be Mount Carmel. And um, right on the other side of that is this little city called Megiddo. And what happens at Megiddo is... is 
Basically, if you come down from Europe into this area, you'll end up at Megiddo. And if you come down from the Euphrates, so from Mesopotamia area, you end up at Megiddo. So this Megiddo is, is this place where kind of all the nations come to meet. So we get our term Armageddon. Okay? And so this is the meeting of nations, end of times kind of, kind of stuff is, is, is what should come to mind. But this place was extremely important in, in old times because that's where you're going to trade with, with all these other great nations. Okay? Um, these great nations that, that are around Israel, though, they, they don't care about the, the people that live up in the hill. So you guys see where Jerusalem is? It's, it's up on the hills there. Um, nobody, nobody wants that. Very, very, very little value there. Um, they're going to leave anybody that's up in the hills alone unless they're going to come down and start messing with their trade caravans or, or, or intervening in, in business. Okay? Anybody that lives up in those hills, it's like, just, yeah, you, you can do that. Uh, what we really want are these, these trade routes. And so in your Bible, if, if you look at your Bible map in the back, you'll see that the Philistines, they, they never uh, release control of that green area right there on your map. That's because that's the most important part. And, and it, it's either the Philistines that are protecting that and defending that because they want it, or it's other nations controlling the Philistines. Uh, and and it's, just, it's just never taken from them by the Israelites. And so what I want us to, 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 to focus on here is that these, um, this, this, this place where God told Moses, Abram, where he told Abram to go, is not a, 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 a super good place to like build a nation, okay? at least in far as our terms, right? There's no big rivers there. There's no... Uh, large amounts of flat land where you can put armies together and grow crops and, and do all this stuff. Okay? This is a, a little, small area that is right on the edge of a super important area. Okay? And so, uh, let's, let's keep reading here in, in Genesis 12, starting in verse 2. It says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay? So, but, so this is God's rescue plan right here. He's putting Abram in this spot. Uh, go back one, please. Almost, almost there. Go back one. So he's going to put Abram up on that hill, and, and his whole family up on that hill, to bless all nations. Not to... Um, Put, put together a super empire that's going to take over, over everything else. He's putting them there to, to become a blessing to all nations. Okay, so now um, let's, 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 let's go to the next slide. Uh, one thing you might not be familiar with is the fact that um, this area is, is sometimes called the um, land bridge. Okay. So in the bottom left you got that, that red circle and the top right you got the that, that big red circle. And on the bottom left is uh, is the Nile River. Okay? The Nile River is this huge river, excellent for irrigation. It runs year round. Uh, and the top right is the Euphrates and the Tigris. Again, also large rivers, excellent for, for irrigation, excellent for creating a huge civilization that that can uh, 
put together huge armies and feed them and, and move people around. Um, and, and so I think we have to get a, a good grasp on this because at least as far as I grew up in the church, um, it was always kind of like, oh yeah, there's Egypt is a really big and great nation, and Babylon's a really big, great and big nation, uh, maybe Assyria is a really great and big nation, uh, and Israel is a really big and great nation. Uh, and they're all kind of fighting with each other. Um, but that's just that's just not the case, and it's not the case that the Bible puts forward either in in this this thing. Okay, and so what I want us to understand is is that um, this is God's rescue plan for for the nations. And he's going to do it in this little, little, small area that's that's right on the edge of this this important path. Okay. So now what I'm going to look at is is uh, turn with me to Second Samuel chapter seven, um, and I want to look at one last promise, one last aspect of this this promised descendant. Okay. Um, if you're not familiar with Israel's history, Abraham has a son, and that's Isaac. And Isaac has a son who's named Jacob. Jacob has a bunch more sons, and they end up selling one of their sons down to Egypt in, uh, uh, in the south there. And then uh, everybody ends up going down to Egypt with, with this, this son, Joseph, who, who eventually becomes important. Israel is enslaved there in Egypt for 400 years, and then they're brought out by Moses. That's the name that I was looking for, by Moses. Okay. He takes them to Mount Sinai. Uh, which is uh, on the peninsula. Can we go back one more, one more slide? Sorry about that. So Sinai is, is just to the right of that big uh, red circle on the left there, and then they go from Mount Sinai, they make a covenant there, uh, and they, they uh, have to wander in the desert for 40 years, and because they, don't, they refuse to go into Canaan, which is where God wants this, this people. Uh, and then from there, they eventually, after the 40 years, they say, okay, we're, we're done with that punishment, let's go in. And they uh, go into Canaan, they take it over, and then things go really badly. Okay? It's kind of like the, the American Wild West uh, before, it's, before it's well settled. It's just a place of lawlessness, and people are falling after their, their own ideas, their own gods, their own things. Uh, and so uh, after that happens for a while, they ask for a king. God gives them Saul. Uh, Saul is a very impressive-looking guy, but just a disaster of a king. Uh, and then we find out about this guy called David. So, so David um, is this kind of hand-selected guy that God has chosen. We find this out in the book of Ruth. He, he's this really faithful family. Uh, this, this, um, he's, he's got integrity, uprightness. He's from this, the tribe of Judah, which is where God says his kings are going to come from. Uh, he defeats giants as a young boy. Uh, just with, with a sling and, and God on his side, uh, he seems to fulfill all these promises that, that we that we're reading about. Yeah, and so um, we get to this point, and 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 really, Second uh, Samuel seven. This is kind of the high point of of David in in his kingship, and we're like, this could be the guy. This this could be the guy who does it, who who crushes the snake. Um, and and what we find out though is 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 that. God doesn't have him in mind, but it's one of his descendants. So let's, let's read here. Uh, starting about halfway through verse 11, your, your Bible probably breaks it up uh, right there. It says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Okay, so, so we have high hopes for King David, uh, and then we think, oh man, his son is going to be even better than, than King David from, from, from this. But the story kind of takes a turn. Um, after this, King David, he, he gives in to the snake. He, he defines good and evil on his own terms. He seizes the forbidden fruit. He murders, he schemes, he lies to cover it up. Uh, he, he repents, to be sure, which is, which is a step better than, than King Saul. Um, but we just see David's kingdom kind of end in, in this. Uh, his family is just, just divided. His sons are killing each other. Um, and and it's, it's just a very sad ending to, to what we thought might, have, might be the one who could, who could fulfill this thing. The rest of the history of Israel is, is kind of a long line of kings that are, that are much worse in, in, uh, than, than David. Uh, Solomon, in, in a big way, and, and all the kings after him are, are just uh, not going to be fulfilling these promises that we're looking for. And the Old Testament ends, and it's left without a resolution to this problem until we see Jesus Christ. Right? And so Jesus, he's born to a woman. He's human, and... A couple weeks ago, Bill taught a lesson on Jesus' favorite title for himself, which was the Son of Man. Okay? So, so he's, he's, a, he's one of us. He's a, he's a human like us. And one of the most common heresies that I think we're in danger of today is the heresy of Gnosticism. Okay? So Gnosticism is, is, is a lot of things that, that go into Gnosticism, but, but one of the things it says is that all matter is evil and only, only spirit is good. Okay, and it's a heresy that's falsified on the very first page of my Bible, where it says that all these physical things are good. Okay, and so the incarnation of Jesus should just kind of really hammer down on that fact that that if 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 matter was good, then what was Jesus doing here? Right? If if Jesus is God, then he wouldn't have been incarnated as a as a human being, as one of us. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't have made any sense. But he did, and he was. His, his own human body testifies that God wed himself to our flesh and bones for, for, for all of history. Okay? Jesus also, we find out, is a descendant of Abraham through the promised child, Isaac. Jesus is Jewish. Uh, he's circumcised. He's obedient to the law. And Jesus passes the test that so many before him fail. And we see that not only is Jesus a human who can defeat the snake, but he's part of this, this rescue plan, part of this line, this plan through David that he's, he's, he's been setting up for millennia. And we find out also now that Jesus is, is royalty. He's, he's from the line of David. We, we see that Jesus becomes the king, but the surprising thing about Jesus' enthronement, although it's probably not that surprising if we've been paying attention to this, to this story, is that it's, it's not like the kingdoms around them. Okay? Does God want a kingdom like Babylon? Does, does God want Pharaoh, who's going to wield the power of sin and destruction and force what he thinks is right on, onto the people around him? 
You know, that's, that's not what God wants for His kingdom. And, and God's laws and His kingdom are never, they've never been focused on those things. And so, what we see again and again, especially in the Old Testament, uh, the example of, of, of what God wanted for His kingdom, are, are these, these people who, who present this as, how can you serve the least and the weakest in your community? And how can you uh, protect your most vulnerable neighbor? How, how can you respond in love to your neighbor even though they are in the wrong? And how do you give them the benefit of the doubt? How can you love enemies who, who, are, who are beating you and harassing you? How can you bring a blessing to people who aren't, aren't your people, aren't your group? And so God's true King Jesus, he, he's, he's put on trial. Okay? And he's put on trial by another Messiah. And it's a false Messiah this time. Okay, the corrupt high priest puts Jesus on trial, right? And and at the beginning, um, remember the high priest is 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 also the an anointed one. So Jesus, the true true Messiah, is brought before this corrupt high priest, and they bring false witnesses and and lie about him, and he's convicted by by the Jews, and then they give him over to Pilate, who's a representative of of the false kings of of this this place, and and. He's beaten and he's mocked. And, and then the king of kings is, is given a, a royal robe and he's crowned with a crown of thorns. And he's paraded out in front of the crowd to, to entertain uh, this, these people and hopefully appease them. Um, but the, the crowd's not appeased because it's full of people just, just like you and me. right? People who, who are corrupt and scared uh, and, and who failed this test. And so... For Jesus' enthronement, they, they lift him up for all to see on a cross. And there is where they proclaim him to be king of the Jews. And again, if, if that were the end of the story, it would still be a tragedy. Right? It would still be the same thing that we learned at the very beginning of the Bible. is that God's going to do something different, but, but we're going to fail. But then God brings about a resolution to the problem. What we've been waiting for this whole time. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Because Jesus, right here, he defeats the worst weapon that Satan has to throw at us, which is death. Okay? Jesus is resurrected, and he's not, he's not a ghost. He's not, he's not a spirit person that walks around. He, he's got a body. He eats. He, he, he walks around and talks with people. Uh, this guy named Thomas touches the scars and the wounds from, that, that, that killed him the week before. Right? And I can't explain what, what's going on there. It's, it's, it's miraculous. It's, it's, it's a resurrection. Okay? But I, I do know this, is that we are the people of the resurrection. Amen. Right? And let's, let's just read 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19, because Paul really drives it home here. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be preaching, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all pity, of all people to be most pitied. And so this is our hope, is that one day we will be raised. My father, uh, he, he entered this sleep seven years ago. You know, I have hope that he's going to be raised, just like Christ. He's, he's the pattern that, that he's going to follow after. And, and we have this hope that, that death isn't the end. And that's what sustained this, this group of people, this, this little sect of Jews that, that, that broke away when they understood who Jesus was and what he did, was that it didn't matter what the people around them did to them, that Jesus was, was raised, and therefore they were going to be raised. And so it just doesn't matter what happens to me. And all the other stuff that, that this kingdom cares about, this, this world cares about, that stuff doesn't matter as much as the stuff that God cares about. All these, these things that he's put before us. And so, in our lives today, we have choices to wield the, the power of sin and, and darkness. Uh, and, and sometimes we do that in our own lives. We, we lie and we cheat and we steal and we murder. But it, it just shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. We, 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 we have to give up the ways that the world says, this is how you get ahead. We surrender all of those things to the one who surrendered all for us. And so today, I want, I want us to take, us, take some time now. We're going we're gonna to sing a song. We're going to reflect on our, our life, our community here in this, this building. Um, maybe, this is, maybe this is all new to you. I don't, I don't know who's, who's a visitor, who's new here. Um, maybe you haven't heard this story or maybe this, this story is new to you. Um, God put this plan in motion to, to bring you to him thousands of years ago. And, and if, if this, this is the case, that this is new and, and this is strange and, and I don't understand it, but it makes complete sense that all, all these things I've, I've chased after my whole life, that, that they're not worth following after, that they're going to continue to let me down, just like they've always let me down. Um, if, if that resonates with you, then just let us know. We, we, we want to talk to you more about that. Because there is a place for you in this new kingdom that Jesus built. And, and maybe you're a part of this body. Maybe you've real, never realized that God wants to partner with you. That he wants more than your faithful attendance on Sunday. Right? God cares just as much and maybe even more about what happens outside the doors when we leave here as he cares about what, what happens here today. Maybe, maybe you've kinda, you realize that you've been playing for the wrong team. You're, you're working for the enemy. You've been defining good and evil on your own terms instead of submitting to what God has said. Uh, you know, that's what repentance is for. We, we, we need to first search our hearts. We've got to confess, say that we're sorry for, for what we've done. We, we ask for forgiveness from our God and from the people that we've hurt. That's, that's very important. We, we try to do better than, than our bad, and, and we continue to grow into the pattern of Christ until we look more and more like him every single day. You know, sin, sin and death wreck everything they touch. It's, 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 just, it's just a fact. Um, and maybe you're in a place right now where you don't know what to do, you don't know where to turn or, or who to turn to. Um, 
we, we just want to tell you that we're here for you, to, to lift you up in, in those struggles. Uh, we want you to give those over to, to, to God. Um, whatever your needs are this morning, please um, make them known as we stand and as we sing.